Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Rapping with Reef Bum. I'm your host, Keith Perkelhammer. So today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Eli Meyer to the show. What's up there, Eli? Thanks for uh, joining us tonight. How's it going? Good, good, man. So uh, just for those of you that don't know uh, Eli, he's a coral biologist and aquarium hobbyist, and he owns Aquabiomics. Aquabiomics can analyze the microbiome of an aquarium using DNA sequencing so they can diagnose issues and identify strategies for promoting a healthy microbiome. Really, really cool stuff. But before we dig into this, I want to take care of a little business and and thank the sponsors for the show, both the Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine. I really appreciate these companies supporting the show. And I also appreciate you folks that are tuning in um, the support from you. So please spread the word. Hit that like button. I see we've already got uh, 20 people in here, but only four likes. So for those folks that are uh, in the stream right now, hit that like button so more more people can find it and learn and be educated out there what's going on here with uh, with Eli's uh, really, really cool company. So Eli, tell us a little bit, a bit about your background and you know how you ended up becoming a uh, coral biologist and exactly what is a coral biologist. So a couple of questions right off the bat for you there. Yeah. Yeah, so I've... I was an academic for 20 years or so, studied a whole bunch of different, well, lots of different organisms, mostly marine invertebrates, but dabbled in odd things like terrestrial plants um, and even a little microbes along the way. Um, once I got my own lab, spent a lot of time trying to grow corals, and I don't need to tell your audience that's a challenging thing, right? We all, we all struggle with it. And that was really what led me to develop the company and develop this testing concept was, um, you know, you can't just put, can't just order corals and put them in a tank and expect them to grow and be healthy, right? Um, so we, we really felt like there was something we weren't measuring in these aquaria. You know, it wasn't just a question of chemistry. It wasn't just a question of the health of the corals we'd bought. Um, there was something we weren't measuring. And that was that was the microbiome. So it was it was that experience of trying to grow corals in a research uh, context that that led me into into where we are now. So, all right. When did, so when, when did you actually start keeping uh, aquariums? How how when did this uh, I guess hobby for you start? How yeah. long ago? Yeah. So I guess I've been working on corals for about twelve years now, ten or twelve years, um, and so. You know, the first half or so of my coral research career, I did what most coral biologists did. That is, I, I did the fun stuff, you know, go fly to a coral reef, mm. go scuba diving, collect mm. the corals, do your experiments there on a tropical island. And that's great. You know, everybody loves that. But it, it's really limiting from a research perspective. You know, that's one or two chances a year to do that kind of work. So the longer I was in coral biology, the more I felt like we needed to grow them in the lab. You know, we needed to do these experiments once a week instead of once a year, right? Um, and so that was yeah, seven or eight years ago, I guess I started, you know, really trying to grow corals in the lab. Um, and, and it's taken me about that long to get to the point where I feel like I finally have them under control. <laughs> so... You guys are unique, right? Because you're the only company out there right now that's doing this sort of testing, correct? 
That's right. Yeah, there's there's a handful of other companies that will do it in a um, a biomedical context, um, and it's it's poop. So it's testing the human gut microbiome. That's a service. Um, there's a couple of companies that do that. There's another company that'll do it for dogs um, to evaluate the digestive health of your dog. But nobody else is doing it in the in the aquaculture world that I'm aware of. Did um, so what? How did you kind of come up with the idea in terms of doing this this testing? Did did you uh, you know were you talking with other hobbyists about this sort of thing, and and were were folks um, just naturally curious in terms of what was in their tanks in terms of different bacteria and different types of um, you know disease and what have you? Did you just feel like there was a a, a pent up demand for this type of thing since there was not a service out there for um, for reef tank hobbyists? Yeah, it was it was really just a couple of things came together at just the right time. So, um, so one was exactly what you're saying that, you know, as, as you know, reef, reef hobbyists have known for decades about the importance of the microbes in our tanks. Um, of course we weren't identifying them and sequencing their DNA, but you know, reefers knew that the, the microbes mattered. Um, and so I, I had this, this awareness from the reefing hobby community that, you know, that there was something there that mattered. Right. But then coming from that, the, the DNA sequencing stuff was really my specialty in the research world. Um, developing new methods for making DNA sequencing cheaper or how to use DNA sequencing technologies on weird non-model animals like corals. Um, and, and I was teaching a workshop. Uh, one, of my, one of my collaborators teaching this workshop specialized in doing microbiome analysis. So we added it to the workshop and I got familiar with the methods and... Yeah, so that was the two things that came together. You know, this workshop that I was teaching and the need from the hobby, and I said, wait a minute, we can just apply exactly that same thing to the uh, to the reefing hobby. So let's let's dig in a little bit in terms of what you guys do in terms of different types of services. But before we do that, let, um, let's get something out of the way in terms of a, a general definition. For those of you that don't know, and I'm not familiar with the terminology, um, you know, a lot of it myself, but what's a microbiome? How do you sure. explain so in, lay, in layman's terms? Let's see if you can. Uh, yeah, so it's it's the community the community of microbes. Um, so it's a mixed community. There's different kinds of microbes. Not saying, not saying bacteria because it includes both bacteria and archaea. Archaea, something that looks just like bacteria. That is, they're tiny, morphologically really simple, but genetically completely different. Um, so that, that community of tiny microscopic organisms, uh, is the microbiome. So in terms of your, uh, microbiome testing, um, is this a correct statement? So essentially in a, in a nutshell, it can measure the good versus the bad bacteria. And, and if that's correct, how do you guys determine what the proper amount of good versus bad is? Is it 70% good? Is it 30% bad? What's, what's kind of like the accepted ratio and how did you come up with that? Yeah, yeah, very good and uh, challenging questions. Um, good versus bad bacteria. First, let's add another category, and that is I don't know, right? Mm. There's a lot of there's a lot of microbes, um, you know. So in any in any sample, I may find hundreds to even a thousand different kinds of microbes, right? And certainly most of those, we don't have good experimental data about what's the effect of this particular microbe in the aquarium. Right. So there's a lot of things in there we don't know about. 
Um, but there's there's a lot we do you know too, right? So nitrophon is a, a group, a functional group of microbes that take ammonia, which is highly toxic, and detoxify, right? Um, this is the group of microbes we all think about when we're cycling our tanks. Um, right. And and we can measure, you know, the not just not just do you have nitrifying microbes, but which kinds, um, you know, right down to the species level. Um, so that's that's a an easily understood kind of uh, good bacteria, right? And then there's an easily understood kind of bad bacteria that is pathogens. Uh, we do find bacterial pathogens in many tanks, um, and that's a case where you know you don't want any of it in your tank, right? So so the question of sort of a good level versus a bad level is less challenging for for a pathogen. Um, Okay, now we get to the other broad category, right? That is the rest of the community. Right. Um, and and this is where I really tried to take a, a data-driven kind of approach. You know, I I didn't want to I didn't want to come out of the gate pretending like I knew what the right microbiome was. The, the fact is, this is just a really not well-studied environment. The um, the reef aquarium. Um, Coral reefs are pretty well studied, but reef aquariums, you know, not so much. Uh, and so I took kind of an agnostic approach to it. I don't know what the right community is. What I do instead is I compare your tank's community with everyone else's tank. And at this point, we've analyzed, I think it's about 900 samples, hmm. hundreds and hundreds of tanks, certainly. Um, and everybody who sent me a sample has, you know, checked a little box saying, well, everything in my tank is healthy or everything my tank is dead I had a tank crash and so I can look at that data set and I can compare your tank with the collection of healthy tanks and I'm, I'm making the assumption here that the microbiome of the healthy tanks is a microbiome you'd like yours to look like that so what but again I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to trying not to make claims that we know exactly you know what the right levels are we're learning a lot about it as we go, um, in great part because of the data that clients contribute as they, you know, as they have their their samples tested. They tell me a lot about their their tanks. And and we do have a um, um, a, a sample report for both a, a microbiome and a DNA sample report. You you guys actually um, had sent me a um, a testing uh, kit for my aquarium, but we're not going to be able to get the. Re I guess the results are not going to be ready for another uh, week or so, so we just missed uh, the uh, going over my tank results on this uh, live yep. broadcast. Yep. But but somebody else, we're gonna we're not gonna name uh, the person's uh, you know who, who the tank it is, but I want to thank that person for uh, providing me with the reports that we can go over tonight because it'll certainly give yeah. us some uh, clarity and make it easier to understand in terms of what uh, to expect in terms of the data and the information and uh, even recommendations, right? In terms of what um, yeah. gets analyzed. So, um, all right. So in, in terms of benchmarks, it sounds like there's a kind of a database that you guys are building based on, on Aquarius tanks that are, are being tested at this point in time. And, um, how do you guys go about making recommendations to correct any deficiencies? Is that, um, again, based on, you know, real world, uh, life experience, or is it based on, um, you know, other information that, um, that you guys are using to make those kind of recommendations? Is it just good old fashioned, 
yeah. common sense in terms of keeping a reef tank and um it's a combination the advice the advice that i'm able to give clients at this point is a combination of sort of three different sources you know some of it some of it is drawing on just my own experience as a hobbyist you know i i can't ignore that right so if somebody comes to me and says well i'm having problems with uh you know cyanobacteria bloom in my tank um part of my response to that has to be you know what has worked for me in the past when right. dealing with cyano um but of course that's sort of aside from the test itself right that's just you know talking with other hobbyists yep um a lot of it is coming from analysis of the database itself um so i think that this was kind of one of the options that you had mentioned um you know and i'll give you one example of that which is the one i always love to talk about because it's the most obvious um when you look at the data that is um there's a group of bacteria probably the most abundant in the ocean um for a long time they were called SAR-11 SAR-11 um, it now has a much harder pronounced name, Pelagibacteraceae, name of the family. In any case, here it is, the most abundant bacterium in the ocean, low-nutrient open ocean waters. Corals on a natural reef, this is the most abundant bacterium that kind of floats in off the ocean and, and they encounter. Right? Um, in many tanks, this is also the most abundant bacterium. Just like you would expect, you know, if you have a nice low nutrient tank, healthy coral reef, you get a lot of this bacterium growing in it. But if you turn on a UV sterilizer, this bacterium, this this family, disappears. Hmm. It it com completely wipes out this whole thing. And so that's a major difference that we can see in somebody's tank. You know, they send me a sample, and honestly, before I even look at their data sheet. Just looking at the test results, I can tell right away you have a UV sterilizer <laughs> because it's such a. You don't see any yeah, of that. Yeah, there's this bacteria. big chunk. Of, exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's color coded pink and it doesn't show up. Uh, that's missing. Yeah, that's, so, that's um, going to be the case for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'll make that prediction now because it's really rare that we see any detectable Pelagibacteraceae in a, in a UV tank. In fact, I saw one recently and I suggested to the guy, you might want to check your bulb. Oh, really? You know, it, it's such a strong signal that I suspect there's something going on with the UV sterilizer if we if we see some of it. Hmm. Anyway, my point in bringing that up is to say that's that's an example of something we can learn from the database. Yep. And then when when a client comes to me with results, you know, it's up to them what they want to do about it. But I can tell them if you do this, you know, it's going to have that effect. Now, I wish I wish we could do the same. I wish the signals were so strong sort of all the way across the community. Um, they're not always. Um, so that's that's one kind of advice I can give. And then I just to bring in the other source of information that is, you know, biological research literature about these these groups of marine bacteria. I spend a lot of time just reading up on the stuff that we find, and you can learn a lot from that. I mean, um, there's a family, um, Alteromonadaceae. Uh, name doesn't matter for this discussion, but this family responds specifically to nutrient addition. Um, you know, so you can do this in the ocean or in an aquarium, spikes and nutrients in there and this family will bloom. And so I know that from the research literature. And so when I see someone's tank that has a high level of this, I can make the suggestion you know, to reduce your nutrient levels to get rid of or to 
to dial down this this excess family that you have. So yeah, a combination of you know the data, my experience in the hobby and the research literature, and um, and we're constantly trying to grow this area of the service. You know, this is this is frankly the biggest challenge by far is the interpretation and yep. advice part. Yep, for sure. So uh, a couple of uh, super chat um, comments, and I want to thank uh, Marcus's Reef for the super chat. The comment is your content is always intriguing and educational with great guests. So thanks for your effort. I appreciate that. And uh, Reef with me, thanks for the super chat. Yeah, we got a question here. Is it possible, um, Eli, to seed PNS permanently? I'm um, sorry. I think I I think I missed to seed what? Um, P is in Peter, N is in S, or N is in Nancy, N is uh, S. Purple nitrifying is that um, reef with me? If you could uh, spell that out for us, uh, better not uh, familiar with the acronym PNS. I think it's I think it's um, the, the purple uh, bacteria is what it is. See, thinking of purple non-sulfur I think so. I think that's what the uh, the question is about. Is it possible to seed that permanently? So, um, I mean, I I think unfortunately the answer to the question has to come down to like what are the specific microbes that, that we're talking about here. Um, but I mean, let me let me broadly, maybe, maybe this maybe this more general answer will cover it. And if not, you know, they can they can come back. Um, I'm going to say that most of the most of the bottled bacterial products that we have tested, which has been a, a very small subset of the universe of bacterial products out there right now, um, we have not seen a lot of evidence that they persist very long in the aquarium. Um, but that is not to say that, you know, I, I don't want somebody to quote me and say, oh, Therefore, he's telling us don't use any bottled products. It's just understand what they're doing. I don't think I don't think I don't think many of them are persisting very long in the aquarium. So if we're talking about bottled products, I'm going to suggest that there's little evidence for seeding them permanently, and and I'm sure there's exceptions to that out there that I haven't tested yet. Okay. Um, now, if it comes to natural products, um, Keith, this gets back to the conversation you and I were having a few minutes ago. You know, if we're if we're supplementing natural microbial communities into the tank, yep. whether that comes from rock, water, sand, or mud, you know, any community that you transplant into the tank, um, then there's no reason to think it won't survive in the tank as long as the conditions are right. Uh, a component of boosting the community with natural sources of diversity, just because they're, we know that they live in the ocean because that's where they came from. Right. So we know they're going to survive there. Right. Uh, let me. Sorry, let me, I couldn't be more specific. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that was that was great. So um, question for you, uh, Eli, in, in terms of what you report out in terms of the species of bacteria, uh, do, can you guys get specific in terms of species or only the groups of bacteria in your reports? Yeah. So it's a it's a. An interesting trade off for a person dealing with the code. Um, that is, there's no obvious right answer. Uh, okay, so as you as you dial down closer to the species level, more and more of the bacteria cannot be identified to the species okay. level. 
that doesn't mean you don't know anything about them. You may know their genus, and the genus may tell you everything that you really care about for that bacterium. Um, I mean, if we're talking about nitrifiers, for example, the genus tells me everything I need to know. Um, so as you go down to the species level, it gets harder and harder to identify the bacteria. Right, more of them kind of fall out as um, and that that tempts you to stay at the top level, right, and say, well, let's just talk about things at the level of you know orders or classes or something, right? But as you get more specific, closer to the species level, you there's more known about the bacteria, right? So if I I can't make many generalizations about a bacterial class, but I can make good generalizations about a bacterial family, God. even better about a genus. So it's this trade-off. Right? Gotcha. And so we've settled on, for the most part, describing these communities at the family level, which is on this trade-off. Um, when it comes down to pathogens, we do need to rely on a species level designation, right? Because that's a specific species. Um, so we, we do a little of both, but that's that's the reasoning behind it. So um, Reef with me, and, and thanks Reef with me for this uh, <laughs> this this name of bacteria that I'm going to try to pronounce, but I'm probably going to butcher. But is it possible to identify or easy to identify Rhodopseudomonas? Rhodopseudomonas. I um, that's my best pronunciation of that. So uh, it, in this in this case, I think the answer to the question doesn't even. And depend on the specific one. Uh, they, it's very general. That, that, um, the way that we're doing this uh, detects all the microbes in the sample, um, as long as they're an identified, named species that has been studied by someone, right? So if you, the questioner, knows the name of it, then some scientist knows it and has it in the database, right? The ones where we really struggle with identifying them are the ones where you know, it, it was only found in some seawater sample while someone was out, you know, collecting ocean uh, sampling at the species level. There's been no experiments on it. You know, those are the ones where we, we fail to, to identify them. So, yeah, um, just trying to uh, put a comment in there and didn't happen. <laughs> I got thrown a little bit. Uh, ACI Aquaculture is in the house. What's up there, Chris Meckley? So, um, all right, we got we got some comments in the chat, and I, and I definitely encourage you folks to uh, to ask some questions. I saw a question about um, the uh, the tank DNA, and we're going to get to that stuff in the uh, in the latter part of the show. Kind of want to focus on the microbiome stuff at this point in time. But um, this is an interesting question, though, about microbiome and. Uh, Rymac one is asking, how does the microbiome of a reef tank compare to the microbiome of a natural reef? I'm assuming the natural reef is much more diverse. Yeah, great question. Um, so the I will say that the diversity levels we see in healthy tanks are actually very comparable to the diversity found on a on a pristine coral reef. Um, early tests, we found some really convenient papers that other people had done this work and found that uh, water samples, the water, the microbiome of water samples on a natural coral reef is a really good indicator for the health of that reef. It turned out that that was kind of the best way to do it rather than 
uh, sand or swabbing the corals directly. They, they, they showed that the water worked the best, which is very convenient. Um, and that's great for us because it lets us directly compare our numbers, right? They're doing the same kind of sampling. And yeah, we find, you know, diversity numbers in the, in the um, several hundreds range, sort of two to four hundred. Depending on how deeply you sequence different mm -hmm. kinds of microbes in a sample, um, so so I'll say broadly the diversity is actually comparable. Um, but of course, we also see really really low diversity numbers in some tanks, especially a brand new tank started in a very sterile fashion, and those numbers are closer to the diversity levels that you see on a very degraded reef, mm. like some of these reefs in the Florida Keys that have just been you know decimated by pollution and various. Uh, various local problems. Um, okay, now, so that's about diversity. M more broadly, um, the microbiome is quite different. Uh, it tries to take this whole community and boil it down to one number that's simply the number of different types. But if you look at the community, the community is pretty different uh, on a natural reef and an aquarium. And I think um, I think this really won't come as any surprise to Aquarius if we sit and talk about it for a second. Think about the amount of surface in your tank compared to the amount of volume, sort of a ratio of you know surface area to volume in your tank, and then do the same calculation for the ocean. Right, the ocean is a huge volume with almost no surface compared to the tank. Um, comparatively, the tank has very little volume and a lot of surface. And we see exactly that in terms of the microbial community uh, in in the water of an aquarium we that mostly live on surfaces. And that's because the water is just constantly sloshing around, circulating through the pipes, picking up those surface uh, bacteria. So similar diversity to a natural coral reef, but a quite different community, and I think the biggest summary there is we have more surface associated bacteria and lower levels of the truly bacteria plankton, the truly free living water bacteria. Makes uh, makes sense. And and Marcus's uh, reef has a, um, a a comment that sort of ties into what you were just talking about there, Eli. And, and you know the comment is newer tanks. Well, there's also there's also a question in there. Newer tanks can be uh, a challenge to get a good biodiversity going, especially in a bare bottom with dry rock. Right, and bottle bacteria helps, but after months, still shows a uh, little diversity. What are your um, thoughts in terms of trying to like get a, a tank like that going and, and really have a uh, sustained amount of biodiversity in terms of the uh, microbiomes? Yeah, so I, we cut out for just a just a second there at the beginning of the question, but I think you were asking for my thoughts on sort of how to establish the microbiome in a new tank. Yeah, broadly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm a, I'm a big advocate of, of live rock, and I want to I really briefly tell, tell the story or confess here that you know, when, I, when I joined, I'm not going to spend a bunch of money on wet rocks. Like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> and this probably is a big part of the reason it took me many years to get corals growing successfully, you know. Um, so I didn't. I didn't come at this, you know, just drinking the live rock Kool-Aid from day one. I was a skeptic. Um, but like many, like many hobbyists, I mean, my, 
my conversion happened the same way other hobbyists did. That was, I saw how effective it was. You know, before I saw how effective it was. And so when I started the testing service, that was one of the first experiments I did. You know, I kind of knew it would work because I'd done it before, right? I, I knew that Live Rock helped. So I started up some tanks with Live Rock versus Dry Rock and just made night and day difference. Those, those experiments are described in detail in an article on Reef to Reef. Um, and that's linked from my website, so it's not hard to get there, yeah. the articles page on my website. So yeah, but generally I'm an advocate of, of Live Rock. Um, I do have to, I do have to, you know, make a little that we've been selling lately, which is um, this tested Live Rock product, Live Reef Rubble. Yeah. Um, it surprised me to see how much how many uh, parasites are coming through in some of the live rock in the in the wholesale supply chain? Um, you know, we started out testing it because we thought, well, we know live rock's good. We have this service; it'll be an added value. Let's do it. It's like, wow, it's twenty percent overall of the live rock that I source comes in infected with uranema. You know, so so I'm an advocate of live rock. But I've also got to temper that. It matters where you get your live rock from, and that's not just saying get it from me. I'm sold out right now, so you can't. Um, but it's to just say think about what you're bringing in uh, with, with your live. So rock. You're, you're saying that some live rock can come with um, a good amount of bad bacteria. Is that what you're saying? That um, could so, seed the rest of the tank with that sort of bacteria. So in in principle, certainly could. I, I've got to say I haven't come across, you know, knock on wood. So far, I haven't come across a batch of live rock with uh, pathogens in it, bacterial pathogens. Um, but I have seen some of the fish parasites, you know, okay. some non-bacterial yeah. stuff, stuff right, that right, shows right, up right. in the tank DNA test. Um, but it, we test both because, in principle, it could have um, it could have pathogens. I mean, there are a couple of bacter bacterial pathogens are really widespread in the hobby. And I'm sure they're coming from the wholesalers. I mean, all the all the fish are pass, passing through there. So, um, Chris from ACI Aquaculture is asking, uh, what are your thoughts on a um, deficient minor trace elements having a direct impact on the species diversity in a closed reef system? How um, yes. how are trace elements fitting into that in terms of them not being, um, you know, uh, I guess you know, lower in, in that sense? But yeah. I think I think this makes a lot of sense. Um, I don't I don't have any direct evidence for the most part, but there's one that I think we've all thought about some, and that is iron. Um, you know, pe people who are dosing trace elements, monitoring trace elements, iron is certainly one of the elements they're thinking about, if even if it's a higher level, right? Um, and in the ocean, uh, there's a, a huge impact of iron fertilization on the, the microbial community. Um, this has come up in the context of climate change. There's been a lot of discussion about seeding the ocean with iron because it promotes bacterial growth. Hmm. Um, anyway, uh, uh, that's where the data are coming from. And um, uh, so it's clear, it's clear that there's a good reason to think that, that elements present at low levels in seawater will have an impact on the on the microbial community so i think the question makes a lot of sense with that said i don't have the data right because what we need 
need to do is really have sort of ICP tests paired with microbiome tests. Right. Um, right now, I'm asking clients to report on sort of the major elements, the the nutrients, the salinity, you know, things like that. Um, but I, um, yeah, I haven't collected the ICP data paired with microbiome data. I, I think when we get there, I think when we have complete knowledge, the answer to that listener's question will be, you know, absolutely, it has a big impact, and here's here's the impacts it has. But I, I just can't, don't have the can't quantify it. So, uh, you know, Eli, what's why would somebody want to order one of these tests? I mean, is essentially, you know, things are not looking right in the tank. You've got some RTN, you've got some STN, and you're looking for some answers in terms of what's going on with the tank. I mean, if your tank is doing really well, does it make sense to kind of order a test from you guys so that person has a baseline in terms of what the tank um, is, uh, you know, quantifying the tank while, it, while it's doing well? So, I mean, is, is S, yeah. you know, RTN and STN really um, big uh, indicators in terms of you got to try to go out and get, uh, you know, your bacteria tested to see if you do have an issue on that uh, front? I will say that, um, so for RTN, STN specifically, um, I very much think these are bacterial. Um, I, I recognize there's a diversity of opinions on this in the hobby, and, and it may be that there's uh, actually multiple syndromes that we're all kind of lumping into this thing right, that we're calling STN. Um, the research literature on natural coral syndromes, they, they call these uh, white syndromes and similar names in the research literature, that, that always ends up settling on some kind of Vibrio. So there's a handful of Vibrio species that are known to cause what looks just like RTN in nature. Um, mm. and, and based on that and some preliminary data I have, I'm I'm definitely in the bacterial camp for STN. With that said, um, we don't have a clear smoking gun signal at this point in time for RTN and STN. That is, uh, we see we see that tanks showing these syndromes uh, tend to have microbiomes that are not what I would describe as healthy. So they tend to be low diversity, low balance, or to say that another way. They don't have enough types of microbes, and they have atypical, unusual communities. They don't have the normal community that a healthy reef tank has. Um, but I don't have kind of a smoking gun pathogen that we've identified for RTN and STN. It does look like the microbial community plays a role, but you know we're not um, we're not there in terms of a, a single a single pathogen. Um, more broadly, you're asking about kind of how to use the test, right? Yeah. Taking a baseline sample, that sort of thing. I think this makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, there's part of me that wants to say, oh, everybody do it once a week, right? <laughs> once a month, whatever. That would be um, great for business. You don't really need to, right? You know, I, th I think nothing in reefing, nothing good in reefing happens quickly, right? That is very true. So... So you don't need to, you know, take a microbiome test of your of your tank once a month necessarily, if nothing's changing. You know, um, I think it's great to to take these samples at a few key points. One is my tank ready. You know, I've I've tried to start up a tank. I've tried to put in all the diversity mm. I can. Now, is it ready? 
Um, I'm going to suggest that eyeballing it is can be misleading. Um, these tests are sometimes revealing things that we, you know, watching the tank and checking for algae growth on the glass and, and that sort of thing. Um, uh, so, so early in the tank's cycle, I think it's good to do that. Or early in the tank's life, right? When you're asking, is my tank ready? Um, another point that I think it's good to do this is um, if you have a problem, right? You had an unexplained fish loss. Um, you know, you, you, all your corals are crashing. Yeah. You don't know what's going on. A round jelly disease or, or RTN, you know. My point here is something bad happened and bad things do happen quickly. So it'd be great to go ahead and take a sample then, you know, right after something bad happens. Um, another, uh, promise I'll stop after this. Um, another uh, time I think people should consider taking these is you've never tested your tank. It's been running for 10 years. Your tank's doing great, but you want to add another fish. Maybe you're finally investing in that dream fish, you know. There are a surprising number of pathogens and parasites in asymptomatic tanks. Hmm. You know, and the fish in your tank may be resistant to it, or yep. maybe there are types of fish that aren't even susceptible in the first place, but that new fish that you just put in may be susceptible. So I think I think that's another good context for a, for a test, is um, to check on the existing tank before you buy some expensive corals or fish. So let's just take that example that you just talked about. Let's say that, you know, you've got a tank that's been going for 10 years and, and all the fish are disease-free, apparently, you know, very healthy and, and what have you. And you do want to add a, um, you know, a very, um, you know, a fish that, that uh, is not cheap and fish that uh, you've had your eye on for a very long time. What, um, okay. and, and let's say you get back the results and, the, and it shows that there's some um, pathogens in, in the, um, in the water that could potentially impact the fish in terms of disease, what kind of remedies would you recommend for, uh, you know, maybe, maybe yeah. it's specific to whatever um, you're, you're finding in terms of the parasite in the water there, but what, what kind of things can you do to get your tank ready for that new addition? If you do have something in there that could yeah. potentially uh, make it ill. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, w I wish I had better, um, I wish I had better news at this stage. Uh, I don't have I don't have a great silver bullet here. Here's how to fix your tank. It to a large extent it does depend what did we find, right? So, um, you know, hobbyists experienced with saltwater fish will know that there are some some parasites that you can go through a fallow period, right? You know, remove all the fish from your tank, let the tank go for X number of days um, without any fish, and and now you can be confident or that's that's a, a, a successful strategy for ridding the tank of some types of parasites, right? Other parasites you can't do that with. And for bacterial pathogens on this subject of the microbiome, uh, I'm, I'm not aware of, you know, a hobby literature or a research literature um, describing ways to fix it. With one exception, I do have a pathogen. Um, so there's an archibacter species that I'm convinced is causing brown jelly disease, hmm. um, at least some instances of brown jelly disease. I've seen this replicated multiple times in my tank, other people's tanks. We're now even seeing it in Europe. So it's like it's happening on multiple continents. I, I believe it. Um, and this this uh, pathogen uh, 
it's not identified to the species level, so it's just an Archibacter species. Um, it's number 1103 in my database. Um, this thing I've done experiments on, and you can um, you can knock it out in in the tank with a um, with a uh, antibiotic, um, oh. ciprofloxacin, very commonly used uh, antibiotic at a very carefully calculated low dose. It has to be this low dose. So, so anyway, I bring that up just to say there's one example where if you had that bug and we do find it, I can simply refer people to, you know, this treatment protocol. Cool. Um, I think more broadly, it's the knowledge that it's in there. Right. I think that's the most important thing, right? Because, you know, I'll tell you, the most common one we find, Vibrio fortis, um, it, it affects seahorses and their relatives primarily. Well, most of us don't have seahorses or pipefish in our tanks. So if I find that in your tank and you're about to add a tang, no problem, right? It's it's not susceptible. Um, so it, it, it often does depend on, on what we find. And I wish we had more silver bullet solutions, right? We're, we're all working on that, I think. Well, information is a good thing and, and uh, you know, it's a valuable thing. And so it's it's at, at least, you know, what yeah. you're, um, you know, you're up against. And uh, perhaps if you're thinking about spending five grand on a fish, then maybe you think twice. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, if you do put the fish in and it gets sick, at least you have an idea how to treat it. Right. right? Because you have a good idea of what the pathogen or parasite is that it, you know, is likely to have just been infected with. So an interesting question from Marcus's uh, Reef. I've, I've seen in other streams that Dr. Tim suggests a slightly warmer temp temperature while still fish only to speed up the bacterial growth. Do you um, buy into that theory? in terms of trying to get the bacteria yeah. growing a little bit more with higher temperatures? Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense um, within reason, but, you know, Dr. Tim knows suggests the correct uh, temperatures. So, yeah, I'd have, I'd have no doubt. I'll, I'll say I think, and somebody correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think those experiments have been done primarily with, with bottled products. So, um, right. So I'd, I'd hesitate to generalize, you know, how much does warming it up speed up the cycle if you're using live rock and live sand. Um, but in general, I think the principle should apply across. A slight warming should speed things up. Makes sense. Uh, Andrew Schoner, thank you very much for the super chat. And the question is, can you explain what Triton STNX RTNX does to the bacteria on corals? Interesting question. That's one of the few products where um, we had really, you know, this was a client who was using the products and did before and after testing, which is one of the services we offer. Um, it really lets us learn about, you know, how do these various products affect the microbiome. So, um, like most of these products, I have no idea what's in them, right? So I can't tell you anything about that. Um, but what else? we were surprised at how specific the effects were. So um, there's other products on the market that have pretty big impacts on the microbiome. You know, it, um, we depict the community as a bar plot, sort of a, a bunch of colored blocks on top of each other. And so when you look at it, it it's visually very different. You know, if, if somebody was dosing many of the products on the market, it makes a huge, huge difference. STNX and RTNX 
um, appeared to have very small effects. Uh, that's not to say no effects. It's to say that they were being very specific. Um, unfortunately, I, I don't remember the exact what those effects were off the top of my head, but my point here is to say that it's a handful. A handful of bacterial types in the sample were completely eliminated mm. by these treatments while not disrupting the rest of the community at all. And I consider that a, a really good sign for a, a treatment, right? You want to you want to have a scalpel, not a sledgehammer. You know, you want to go in and just affect the specific um, kinds of bugs. Right. Yeah. You don't want to have any collateral damage. So to be able to have, be, um, you know, your target tar target, you know, certain bacteria sounds pretty, um, pretty cool. So let's um, let's get into a, a sample test for this uh, customer's tank of yours. And, um, yeah. you know, so I, I, as I mentioned before, you know, you guys sent me a, um, a test um, package that um, I sent you back, you know, stuff for my uh, my established uh, tank, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing what uh, what what comes of that in terms of the report. But you know, what basically, um, you know, I, I I took water samples and I swabbed the uh, the inside of a return pipe to uh, you know get the tank's biofilm to um, you know. So essentially, you know, this this first test we'll talk about. Let's look at the uh, the microbiome report for this uh, customer's tank and the. Um, the first page we're looking at here is this uh, diversity score, so it's a, it's a percentile. And um, you know what it says on this page is that your tank's diversity is among the lowest of the tanks we have tested. And um, right, and then there's a uh, there's a there's a hyperlink in there that we we're not going to go to in terms of more um, information in terms of how to increase a score. But um, the point here is that this tank that was tested is a very healthy happy reef tank, right? But it's got a low yep. diversity score. So can you explain what that means? So, you know, that's a puzzling, that's a puzzling result. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of good uh, ecological research that says uh, a more diverse community is um, a more productive community, a more resilient community. That is, it, it doesn't crash when the environment changes a little. Um, you know, it's generally a positive thing in, in the field of ecology to have a diverse community. And let's get much more specific. You know, on a coral reef in nature, a pristine coral reef has a more diverse microbial community than a degraded coral reef. So there's lots of good reasons to say higher diversity is good. And that's um, uh, and the, the other one I want to add that'll ring true with reefers is we've all seen this. You know, a new tank doesn't grow SPS as well as an established tank. And yes. um, a new tank, a brand new tank, always has very low diversity, you know, much lower than what we're looking at here. Um, so this one is kind of an exception to the rule. You know, we're seeing a tank with um, low diversity, but um, very, very good. And I should add that uh, the client who's a friend of mine and lives in the area, and so I get to sample his tank repeatedly and see his tank. I've, I've seen over time his tank has had higher diversity in mm. the past. Um, so it's it's an interesting thing where his tank is declining in diversity, but as we go to the next score, it's increasing in balance. So um, it's... Right, high balance. You learn more from the tank by looking at it over time than you do by just taking a single snapshot um, at once. And I'm kind of benefiting here from the history of having, you know, looked at this this tank before. So yeah, on the diversity score, the numbers 
types and then H centile, right? So that means, you know, 92% of the tanks we tested were, were higher diversity than this, this tank. But now we're, now we're on balance. Yeah, now we're Did on balance, yeah. There? Great. So yeah, um, a score of 0.65, which is in the 97th percentile, right? So a very high balance score. And that means it's a very um, typical community. It, it matches closely the, the kinds of microbes and their relative levels. If you compare this tank with um, the typical tank in my, in my database. And I think that's visually pretty easy to appreciate on the, on the bar plot uh, for, this, for this tank. Um, so Wade Riles has an interesting question. I've seen the question is I've seen BRS say adding more coral sooner can help add diversity. Is, is that um, something you think is true or has some validity? I think I think that makes sense. I don't have data on it. Um, but you know a coral includes a lot of surface, right? Um, you know, even if it's just a frag plug, that's some surface that's going to have microbes on it. Um, if it's a coral with uh, a piece of skeleton, right, so a little, little chunk of a colony, all that internal space, um, you know, is, is densely colonized with, um, with, with microbes. Um, so I think you're basically adding a chunk of live rock when you add, add coral. Right. I mean, you are. That's what the coral skeleton is, right? So, so I think it completely makes sense. I just haven't done the experiments. And, and I guess off the cuff, you know, a little, a little frag, right? A little pinky-sized frag on a clean frag plug, maybe not adding so much, but a, a nice big chunk of wild colony, well, that'll... Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard others say the same thing. I've heard Jake Adams say the same thing. Like, you know, he, he adds corals before he even adds fish to a tank. And um, I, I'm, I'm, you know, my opinion in terms of adding a lot of corals really soon to a tank, especially like an SPS dominant tank, I don't personally like to do it because there's going to typically be a very high likelihood that you're going to have some sort of ugly phase with that tank. I mean, yeah, you should try to add those corals after you go through that typical ugly phase, but sometimes there might be something that pops up that after the ugly phase that you're not expecting, like maybe dinosaurs or something like that. If you've got a ton of corals in there, then those could be impacted. Of course, I wouldn't suggest adding, you know, a lot of uh, high-end stuff, but that's my little, uh, you know, um, editorial in terms of adding corals early versus not adding corals early. Just, I guess it's personal right. preference, but I have heard folks say that if you add a lot of corals early, that it could be a benefit to the tank itself. So let's... um. Let's move on to the next uh, page of the report. And this is the uh, the community composition. So this is showing, you know, the um, I guess kind of explaining the balance score a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I lost you for a second, but I think we're back. So we had a high balance score, which means it has a very typical community, um, and I think visually that is apparent from looking at this. Here's the way to think about this. On the right-hand side is the typical sample, and you can really just focus on the most abundant five families. So look at the biggest colors there, right? We've got, you know, from the top, we've got red, green, pink, and I don't know, hot pink. Yep. Right, so look at just those five major families. You can readily identify all five of those families in this sample. And they're even at very comparable levels. Um, you know, 
the Vibrionaceae, the hot pink one on the bottom. This is the group that includes Vibrio, um, mm. a, a, a genus that we pay attention to because it includes some pathogens. That one's almost identical, right, in this tank versus the typical sample. And you can kind of go down that list of the major families and say, yeah, he's, he's got pretty much the right amount of, of all of them. Um, so take a look at that pink one. That's the, the Pelagibacteraceae. This group I mentioned earlier, SAR11, um, this is the group that's wiped out by UV sterilizers. And so, you know, picture what that would look like with no pink bar. Um, that's why I can, I can tell right away when I look at somebody's tests if they're using a UV sterilizer because that big chunk is, is gone. So, yeah, it's a very typical community. So can, um, in, in terms of the report, does this uh, specify in terms of um, what's a pathogen and what's not a pathogen in, in terms of the microbiomes in the uh, in the sample, or um, is is that something where you can find more information by digging deeper into the uh, in the report? Yeah, so down at the bottom of the report, it does you know without without having to expand any tables or anything, it does include that question: Did okay. I find any pathogens? Okay. In this tank, there was there was one. So um, I want to thank uh, Hydrospace LLC for a very, very generous uh, super chat. And uh, the question was actually asked earlier, and we, um, we had Eli answer it. it, it based on, uh, the question was based on the observations in terms of a comparing a typical reef aquarium versus the uh, natural reef. How does that uh, differ? Um, and I think the, uh, the answer was that um, you're going to find um, – Pretty pretty big uh, differences, a lot more balance, I guess, out on the uh, natural reefs versus the uh, our reef tanks. But then the um, there's a follow up, and uh, that follow up is: and have you noticed that any ecologically important groups tend to die out under captive conditions, even if introduced via the wild corals, natural live rock, etc.? Yeah. Um, so I mean, at the risk of being repetitive, I think the best answer to that question is kind of a repetitive piece. That is, let's let's look back at that Pelagibacteraceae group, the pink the pink group in that um, in that bar plot we were just looking at. So the question was, are there groups that tend to die off over time? This is a group that absolutely dies off over time if you turn on your UV sterilizer. You know, and and I think the answer to that question always gonna is gonna have an if in there. Right. It dies off over time if the conditions are wrong. You know, um, that is the biggest one that I've seen. I'll also say that generally over time we see a decline in diversity. So. Um, so there generally are that are dying off over time. Um, and, you know, frankly, I think that may be what's happening in this tank that we're looking at here. I know that he supplemented. So he, he's had iterations of this tank going for a long time, you know, has done tank transfers, et cetera. And I know early after his recent transfer a year or two ago, I don't know, he did boost the diversity with some natural products like Live Rock. Um, and it, it looks like it's gone down over time since that, uh, since that time. So stuff is dying off over time. So Eli, do you, um, are you a proponent of using UV for a reef aquarium? Do you think it does, um, more harm than good? So I was completely agnostic to it until I started saying, um, and I'm now advising people to think carefully about whether you need to use it. Hmm. You know, so if you have a, 
if you have a parasite in your tank that's killing all your fish, well, that's a big motivation to turn on the UV, right? You know, so I'm not I'm not advising people never use UV, but um, sort of a prophylactic, preventative kind of UV use, I think, is perhaps not a great idea, um, because it does. It's by far the biggest the biggest change. Um, say it this way. It's the one thing you can do to your aquarium that will have the biggest impact on the microbiome. Hmm. It's whether you turn on the UV or not. Interesting. It's also the biggest difference between a reef aquarium and a natural, I'm sorry, a, a reef tank uh, microbiome and a natural coral reef microbiome. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, you know, I've been keeping reef tanks for 27 years, and um, up until uh, about uh, six months ago, I had never used UV in my tanks, and now I've got UV on both tanks. And they're doing really well, you know. Um, the uh, my my uh, my established yeah. system and my my newer tank, and and you know, really a couple of reasons why I wanted to uh, to use UV. One is, uh, you know, I was uh, using um, on my my newer Peninsula tank. I had an outbreak of dinos, and the mm-hmm. UV just uh, totally eliminated the uh, the dinos, and it was great. So I I, I just yes. wanted to keep it running to, as kind of a preventative measure to to make sure that the dinos don't pop up. And then I uh, yeah. then I started doing the same thing on my uh, you know 187 gallon established tank. I just kept running. Uh, you know, I bought a UV and and started running on that tank for the same reason. I was like, you know what, be a great preventative measure for dinos if that ever happens to this tank and and uh, for fish disease. But you know, I, I understood that it's not uh, yeah. going to be the cure all for for all fish diseases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, dinos seem like another great example of something that yeah turn on the uv to get rid of the dinos you know it's not just aesthetics right if you let the dino bloom get out of hand you know you're going to lose corals Um, so yeah i i i just um i guess i just like to emphasize the the off-target impacts that it's having you know Um, fair enough fair enough people can certainly run tanks with zero pelagibacteraceae right turn on the uv you'll have none of that pink group in your sample and people run very healthy tanks that way but I think we all know this in the hobby that you can find people who do things anyway and are successful, right? Yeah. I know a guy who runs his tank only – well, tank. He has 20 tanks in his house, runs them all on tap water, and they're amazing. <laughs> He's got some probably some kick-ass tap water, I would assume. Um, average person. Let's, yeah, um, I guess so. Let's uh, let's let's go to let's jump to the next um, page of the report, and this is um, this is talking about um, well, it's kind of explaining your sample showed differences in the relative abundance of one of the more major microbiome uh, families compared to the typical reef tank. So it's talking about the um, you you were just talking about that pink group, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's saying that look, you have higher than it's it's basically just um, some code I wrote to take those pictures we just looked at and kind of take this the the take-home message is out of them you know yep. this family is lower um frankly this this community is so normal that i would ignore those differences they're they're very subtle differences this this community is as normal as it's going to get gotcha 97 percentile all right, so moving on to the next page. This is the nitrifying uh, community. So this is just a, um, a look in terms of all the different um, nitrifying bacteria that's in this tank. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I was earlier kind of saying that when we test this group, it's not just a question of yes or no, right? It's not just a question of is my tank cycle 
cycled or not cycled. You know, there's two broad groups, the ones that eat ammonia and the ones that eat nitrite. And within each of those groups, there's multiple types. Some of these are not even bacteria. And so this this is the one I always have to point to when when people say, why don't you just say bacteria? Well, actually, the most abundant ammonia oxidizer in the tank is not a bacterium. It's archaea. So um, in this sample, if you look down to the fourth one in the table, you see that's the only one that showed up, hmm. right? And that's that's not in the bacteria at all. It's in the in the archaea. Um, another really quick point I'll make about that group: that group is very abundant in the water uh, sample. So, as you know, we do sample both the biofilm and the water. Um, the reason, the entire reason that we do that biofilm sample is because it has more of these groups, uh, the, the nitrifying groups. Um, but the one that we found in this sample, that guy is actually found at very high levels in the water column. So it's uh, a piece of, um, you know, reefing hobby lure that gets repeated a lot is that there's nothing important in the water. Um, and this is the one I always like to point at to argue against that. So, you know, there's a lot of ammonia oxidizers swimming around in the water. So can can these results for the nitrifying bacteria actually be lower if they're um, you know that bacteria is more prevalent in the rock and the sand you know is is that um, something that you have to um, you know kind of play around with in terms of the sampling of that? Um, sorry, we did get cut off, so I want to make sure I heard your question right. Um, could. Just say that again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the question is basically, you know, with nitrifying bacteria, if, if they're more prevalent in the uh, in the sand and the rock, and, you know, the way that um, we're providing samples to you from the tanks, it's through the water column and through the bio, biofilm. Does the biofilm, right. you know, adequately represent the, uh, the nitrifying bacteria, or is there something potentially down the road where you might have clients um, sampling sand or rock? Right. Yeah, it's a great question, and, and it's something that we um, have evolved on over time. You know, the first is with water samples, um, <clears throat> based on some of the research literature. Um, and we do find, um, actually, I'll say that in most samples, we find all the nitrifying microbes in the water sample, too. Um, but they're present at higher levels. In the in the biofilm sample, um, and that's the reason. You know, it just makes it more sensitive, right? We're going to detect them better if we include that sample. So why the why the biofilm and not the sand or rock? So um, there's some good research literature from the uh, water treatment world. You know, where there's lots of and lots of bacterial communities being studied for wastewater treatment. Um, and so there was good information out there that the biofilm on the ins inside surface of pipes um, does does contain that that okay. community, um, and so that was that was why we started on that. Um, you know, my thinking was everybody has everybody has biofilm in their tank. Um, almost everybody has a return pipe or something like that, and even in yep. an all-in-one tank, you can find something. But if I start asking people to sample the sand, you know, what do we do for the people with bare-bottom tank? Right. Thanks. Um, that is a really tricky uh, proposition. I have tested the sand, um, and what I find is that we don't find additional types of nitrifying microbes in the sand. We find higher levels of them, but the same types as in the biofilm. Gotcha. Um, 
I have not tested the rocks yet because it's tricky. You know, it's it's on the list. Yeah, I'll get to it. <clears throat> so let's uh, let's move on to the next uh, part of the report, and that's the nitrite oxidizing bacteria. So um, yeah, Eli, can you explain that uh, that piece of it? It's just a different type of bacteria. Sorry, I lost the uh, beginning of that question. So we're looking at the nitrate yes. oxidizing yeah. uh, yes. bacteria. And um, so this is, of course, that second stage converting from ammonia to nitrite and then nitrite down to nitrate. Um, in principle, this is quite a diverse group. I guess there's six different types. And this is at the generally at the genus or family level that we're breaking these up. Um, but this tank, no detectable nitrate oxidizers. Um, this is a surprise to many clients on their first sample. Um, it was a surprise to us early on. Uh, at this point, I'm no longer surprised by it. Okay. Uh, the, the, the fact is there's more variation in the levels of these communities among tanks than we initially thought there would be. You know, we started with this kind of binary idea of your tank is cycled or not cycled, right? And of course, you know, what we mean by cycled is you have adequate populations of nitrifying microbes, right? That's better described as a number, right? As a level, you know, you could have a little, you could have a lot. And, and what we're seeing is that a lot of people's tanks actually have undetectable levels of nitrite oxidizers. Now there's, there's another piece I have to add to this, and that is the nitrate oxidizers are always about 10 or 20 times less abundant than the ammonia oxidizers. So, and and they tend to grow together. So it's like as one goes up, the other goes up. Yep. yep. Um, so, you know, if I see somebody's sample that has just a low level of and no detectable nitrate oxidizers, my interpretation is that whole community is just lower. Right, it's not a specific deficiency. It's just the whole community is lower. So nothing really um, to worry and about. And of course, as yeah, okay. well, it, you know, there's more discussion to be had on this, but um, I guess I'm just trying to make the distinction that an undetectable nitrite oxidizer on the test doesn't necessarily mean there's no nitrite oxidizers in the tank because of this kind of ratio between the two. If I see ammonia oxidizers, I expect there are also nitrite oxidizers. 10 or 20 times lower than that. Okay, so more broadly, like, is it a problem? What does it mean if you have low uh, nitrifying communities? Because this this report we're looking at is actually fine. You know, he, the ammonia oxidizers were within the normal range. The uh, nitrite oxidizers were undetectable, but that's not actually that unusual. Yeah. If we didn't detect ammonia oxidizers, I'd be worried. However you find functional established healthy tanks with undetectable ammonia oxidizers too. Oh. And this brings up a much bigger discussion that I think doesn't happen a lot in the hobby. And that is the discussion about the competition for nitrogen in the aquarium. So we think about the nitrogen cycle, right? Or, you know, the nitrifying community. Um, these are bacteria that want to eat ammonia, right? It's food for them. Want to eat nitrite. It's food. But there's other things in the aquarium that also consider it food and are competing for it, right? Um, and so when you have one of these groups get higher, the other groups will get lower. 
because they're competing for the same food. So the three things to think about, one is nitrification, the thing we always think about. The other two, carbon dosing and uh, photosynthesis. So when you dose carbon into the aquarium, it promotes bacterial growth. And that bacterial growth also involves uptake of nitrogen, either as ammonia or nitrite or nitrate. So they're competing with the nitrifiers. You've, you've successfully controlled your, your nutrient levels, but, but it will result in a lower nitrification, uh, nitrifying community. So, you know, you can make the same discussion about the photosynthesis with a macroalgal uh, refugium. So my, my real strategy with these uh, nitrifying communities is to think about, do you have a problem with controlling nutrients in your tank. Right. If you do, and this test reveals a deficiency, then that may be a way to correct it, right? But if you've if you're carbon dosing or if you're running a really you know well lit macroalgal refugium, um, it may not be a problem at all that you have a low nitrifying community because you're processing. All these results are context dependent, and that's why I ask so many questions in that questionnaire when you when you register the sample. Right. So you you um let, let's 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 talk about a couple of things you um you mentioned, Eli, and that one is carbon dosing. So um you know you would carbon dose as you mentioned to to speed up the uh, you know the the bacteria in terms of multiplying and really kind of get the uh, the process going. So a lot of folks that dose bacteria in a bottle are also dosing a carbon source like vodka or something else to uh, really get that uh, process going. But it can also be a, a risky proposition, right? Because if it happens too fast, then um, you know the tank can lose oxygen because the bacteria multiplying so fast. I mean, I don't know the whole science behind it, but I know it's a, it's a big risk. So is, is, it, um, is it necessary to, to uh, you know, dose a carbon source when you're dosing bacteria, or is it a safer bet to just dose um, you know that that bacteria more on a consistent basis? You know, I, I guess um, yeah, I, could be a slippery slope. So I, I want to say generally, you know, follow the manufacturer. Bacterial products are not just you know cells floating around in water, but you know they they've included them in a solution that is um, optimal for their health, and I I'm quite sure that includes some nutrients. Um, in a handful of products, we know there's vinegar in them, for example, right? a carbon source. Um, so I think my general answer is going to be, you know, follow the manufacturer's recommendation. If they've told you, hey, you must dose five mils of vinegar with this product, then okay. Um, the, the other thing, separately from that, that I want to say is um, the, the microbes that are, um, that are, um, promoted by carbon dosing are different microbes than the nitrifying community. Different kinds, completely different kinds. So, you know, when we're talking generally about bacteria in a bottle of products, many of those are nitrifying microbes that are not going to benefit from carbon dosing. Others would benefit from carbon dosing. So it's really going to come down to the product. Right. But 
but I'll certainly say some of them would not benefit from it. Gotcha. Um, so I wouldn't advise it as some sort of general rule to always right. do that. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, let's um, let's move forward in terms of the report. So now the uh, the next thing we're looking at is the uh, the cyanobacteria, and that's interesting in terms of determining whether or not you have any uh, cyano in, in your tank. And I've always kind of assumed that cyano is present in every tank. It's just a matter of um, you know having enough for it to show, uh, you know, for it to right. rear its ugly head. Is is that uh, a, 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 a true statement? So um, it is very common to see cyano in our samples. I think I agree with you that it's probably present at some level in every tank. Um, however, it does up to the way that we sample. That is the water sample and the biofilm sample. Um, so if somebody has a, a cyano map in their tank, you know, a nuisance cyano bloom and they really want to identify it, um, then it's advisable to directly sample that, that bloom and you know, I, I can give clients advice on that. I can send you an extra swab or something. It's it's a pretty pretty straightforward thing to do to to grab a chunk of that cyano. Um, at at the level of our test, the the data that the table that you're looking at right now, look at the right hand column in the table. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's mostly zeros, right? So what that's showing you there is um, in in all the tanks that we test, um, I don't remember the exact percentiles. I think I'm doing like the 10th to 90th percentiles yep. or something here. The point is most tanks actually have none of these at detectable levels. Um, so we, we often see one or two pop up at low levels in tanks, but generally they aren't they aren't showing up at gotcha. high levels. Um, let's, uh, let's move on to the last page, of this, and this is the, um, the fish pathogens and the coral uh, pathogens uh, page and I, I see the um, the dreaded vibrio on that uh, page there well, so, yeah so can you explain to us uh, what they uh, the type and the frequency mean yeah so um it, you know I should probably change the some of the labels here um, the to make it more intuitive. Um, the type is an internal label that's really just useful for comparing across samples. So, you know, if you have a if you have this this particular type 188, you know, that's a particular DNA sequence within the species Vibria fortis. So there can be multiple variations, multiple kinds that would all be in this in this same species the type doesn't matter very much it's simply a label okay. internally frequency is the level okay and so that's um you know frequency is is um you can just think of it as um the number of the number of dna sequences that were this thing divided by the total number of dna sequences right so it's it's what fraction what fraction of the um of the population. So this is a very low fraction, right? It's less than 1%, 0.8%. Um, um, another way to say this number. Um, so, but then the last one is the name, right? This is identified down to the species level. Um, this is a pathogen by far the most common, uh, about 50% of tanks. Mm. So it's not in every tank, but it is common. It's a pathogen of low concern uh, because uh, as far as I know, it only affects seahorses and their relatives, oh. um, where it causes gastroenteritis. Gotcha. Um, 
funny enough, there's a one study on sea urchins where it caused some disease issue. But, you know, so a, a pathogen of low concern, it's not not going to kill the new tang you put in. But, um, so, I don't know a way to get rid of this all right. once you have it. Gotcha. Um, all right. So coral pathogens, this, this person's tank, there's, um, there's nothing in terms of coral pathogens. Yep. But what kind of pathogens could potentially uh, pop up in a tank? Yeah. So um, there's all of the Vibrios that I've, when we were discussing uh, RTN earlier, and I was describing how in the research literature, um, they always identify various kinds of Vibrio as being associated with um, all of those species are in these in this table. So in principle, we can find those. Um, we actually see those uh, very infrequently. Um, there's two coral bacterial coral pathogens that pop up uh, occasionally. One is a very recently discovered coral pathogen that this is, um, boy, I think it was just two years ago that they discovered this this bacterium. It's called Aqua rickettsia roeri. Um, this bacterium is present in one third of wild corals worldwide. Wow. And it lives in their tissue. So think of it as almost like the mitochondrion, except it's not in everybody. Most of the time, in normal, healthy conditions, uh, it's neutral. It's just a neutral symbiote. But under high nutrient conditions, it becomes parasitic and leads to coral disease. Are, are there anything... Uh, is, that, that shows up. Is, is there anything that, that uh, hobbyists can do to prevent those types of, um, you know, pathogens from entering their tanks. I mean, you know, if you have SPS, you know, a common thing to do is to do a, a bear dip or some other sort of dip to uh, make sure you don't get macro-eating flatworms or red bugs, you know, is, is that kind of dip something that could potentially kill those pathogens in terms of the bacteria? Yeah. yeah so, um, you know, the one that I just described is, is pretty recently, um, pretty recently discovered. So, you know, it's a new field of how, how do you treat it? Um, and as I said, you know, in nature, it, it occurs so broadly that it's, it's not even clear that we should be thinking about trying to eradicate it. Right. But it's, um, uh, yeah. Uh, so that, it's not, you, you just don't, you, you just don't know enough uh, at this point to answer that question, I guess is what the, uh, the answer. Well, I, I, I think, I think I want to come out and say, that I don't recommend a general antibiotic dip. You know, so you you make the analogy with with flatworms or other pests like that. We know of a specific pest, and we know of a specific dip that will that will kill that pest, right? And so it's worth doing that. Um, we don't have a whole bunch of other beneficial animals crawling around on that coral that we want to preserve, right? And so I think that that practice has kind of made sense. You know, let's, let's knock out the, the flatworm, let's knock out the red bugs, whatever. Um, but in the microbial world, I mean, the, the coral, um, the surface of the coral tissue has a, a layer of mucus on it, and that mucus promotes the growth of a very specific uh, bacterial community. Um, there are a whole career about just studying that sort of communication between the bacteria on the coral and the coral itself. It's, it's like the human gut very much. And so just like it's not a great idea for humans to just 
swallow antibiotics every day in the hopes of killing the random bad thing because you'll kill the good things too. Right. Um, I, w- I would say the same thing for general uh, antibiotic dips on corals. I don't advise, you know, just dipping them in antibiotics uh, without information. My, uh, my pet may be pathogen, Archibacter number 1103, that seems to cause brown jelly disease. Um, I have taken this only with euphilia because I can do a, a very low dose dip um, that specifically, I calculated it specifically because it, it shouldn't kill most other bacteria. You know, it's it's designed to minimize the damage to the microbiome um, while killing the, the one that I care about. So, so, yeah, I guess my general thought is let's not nuke the whole coral microbiome. As a, as a general practice, but if you have specific reasons, a batch of corals that are sensitive to a specific thing, it, it may make sense. Okay. Um, another question I have for you. The use of activated carbon, the constant use of activated carbon, is, uh, is there anything wrong with that in terms of uh, its impact on the microbiome? Uh, I, I don't know the answer to the question. You know, I... Uh, um, I suspect I suspect it's going to have an impact, and I suspect it's an impact I may be able to see in the database. So let me let me say that um, you know often the challenge is I don't have enough data on both categories, right? So let's go back to UV sterilizers. There's a lot of people running them, and there's a lot of people that are not running them, right? And so I have a large number of them and do statistics that say, yeah, this is different. We're having an effect. Um, and I, I think that's similarly going to be the case for um, for activated carbon. Um, I suspect there's enough in the database. So I, I should look at that and get back to you. Yeah. You know, maybe it's. Maybe the database has grown enough that we can actually answer that question. Yeah, no, because I use activated carbon 24 7 on my tanks. So, yeah. We'll uh, we'll find out. Um, let me let me just make sure I went through the uh, right. We're okay. We're uh, we went through that microbiome report. A um, couple of questions from Hydrospace LLC. Is it possible that anaerobic communities may be underrepresented in your tests due to the additional difficulty of collecting them? And then he's got a follow up question or her. I I think that's that's absolutely true. You know. Okay. Um, Every every kind of sample that you take from the tank will have its own characteristic community um, with some overlap and, and some unique groups. So for anything that I haven't sampled yet, I'm confident there's something there that we aren't seeing, you know, in, in the other samples. And the, uh, the follow-up question is, are there any special sample collection techniques that you'd recommend to users who wish to specifically analyze these groups? I uh, missed the beginning of that. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, are there any special sample collection techniques that you'd recommend to users who wish to specifically analyze these groups? Well, I mean, I... I think it. I think it all comes down to where we want to sample them, right? I, I think if you have a deep sand bed, for example, you know, I think that's one one environment where we may look for um, anoxic and, and hypoxic zones. Um, I have taken those samples uh, by 
simply taking a plastic tube, collecting, basically take a core of the sand using the plastic tube, sort of push it down onto the sand. Um, and then I, I send it in water and shake the crap out of it, right? Get all those bacteria off of the sand and into the water. Um, and then I sample that water just like I would sample any other water. Um, so yeah, if, if a user wants to take some kind of non-standard samples, then I mean, we can have that discussion before I send out a kit and send you extra swabs or tubes or, or whatever. Um, I'll say most, most clients don't do that, but we do have some clients in kind of a research or aquaculture context where they send me oddball things like bacterial cultures and Interesting. So, you know, identify this for me. All right. Let's, um, Eli, I know uh, we've, we've been uh, we've been talking here for about an hour and a half, and, and hopefully you could stick around a little bit more and talk about your DNA uh, testing. Uh, you know, yeah. we yeah. Um, we have a uh, another um, sample report from this client of yours in terms of the the tank DNA testing. Just in, in a nutshell, can you explain what the, uh, the tank DNA testing is? Yeah, so in a lot of ways it's... Um, it works the same as the microbiome testing in that it's DNA sequencing. Um, you know, where you take it, tell you what's in it, but, um, but everything else is different. Okay. So the, the sample you're collecting is not microbial cells. It's not bacteria. It's the DNA that's dissolved in your water. Mm. So the, the tank water has DNA dissolved in it. The same is true for water in the ocean and researchers are using this now to study everything from salmon to marine mammals where you just take a water sample and you can tell wow. you know what's living in that part of the ocean yeah it's it's an amazing field um they have to sample much more water because the ocean's big yeah i bet <laughs> um so it's really a lot easier for us we have so little water relative to animals so yeah you sample water uh from your aquarium the dna sticks to the filter you send it to me um and then what I do with it is different. So instead of instead of uh, analyzing the bacterial DNA in the sample, I do something completely different. I analyze the bacteria, uh, sorry, analyze the DNA from everything that's not bacterial, the eukaryotes. So the biologists among your audience will remember this. We are eukaryotes, animals, plants, fungi, bacteria, or archaea are eukaryotes. And we see all of them in this sample. We see terrestrial plants. If you've got some grass pollen blowing around in the air and it landed in your tank, we will mm. see that. Um, yeah. So yeah, well, I'm, uh, I'm, so, I'm showing the first page of the uh, the report here. Yep, great. So uh, this this report, the way we interpret it, is a bit more specific, a bit more targeted than the microbiome. You know, the microbiome is this community of living things that we're really interested in describing that community describing the community of dna molecules so this is a bit less descriptive and a bit more targeted here we'll, we'll drill right into parasites and um in the, in the version you're showing we can't click on it but if you had it in front of you you could click on view the full table and it would show you everything that's in that table which includes things like um cryptocarrion the parasite that causes ick and uronema the parasite that causes uronema, right? So there's a whole list of parasites and pests here that we're looking at. This one not have any of them. So you could you um, could essentially. So when you get a clean result back, it's. 
Yeah, no, that's pretty cool. So, I mean, so you could essentially have this test done and it could say you've got acro-eating flatworms or you've got red bugs. You've got any pest that's known to the hobby that could have some DNA in that water. That's That's pretty cool. That's really cool. Yeah. So, I mean, the power of... The power of this kind of approach, um, whether we're talking in a research context or in the hobby context, the power is we don't have to know what we're looking for. You know, I, I don't do a test for ick and then another test for velvet, but then I don't notice flatworm because I didn't run a test for them. Right? I don't test for everything. If it's a eukaryote, and so there's a few things. It has to be a eukaryote. It has to be abundant enough in the sample. Um, in order to be detectable, um, and what, it has to be present in the database. What does that mean in that terms is, of somebody ab- else abundant? Has identified it and sequenced it. What does that mean in terms Sorry, of having? Sorry, you were asking a, about abundance. Yeah. So, what, how do you qualify uh, abundance? I mean, is that um, you know a, an infestation of the pest, or can you just have a, a right. the, the start of the problem and where you don't have a lot of the pest at that point in time when you're testing and it won't show up on the test? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know there. There's certainly a limit to the sensitivity of any test, you know, PCR test for a disease in humans, you know, there's a limit to that sensitivity. And, and there's a, a limit to the sensitivity here, too. Um, that limit uh, is based on the DNA sequencing coverage. So in other words, we can spend more money to make the test more sensitive. Um, I, I aim for five to 10,000 DNA sequences. So to be clear for your audience, that's literally five to 10,000. Should say it differently. Pairs of 250 base pair long sequences that to produce this one report, right? Like 10,000 of them. Um, each one of those sequences is, you know, this string of letters that we're analyzing and comparing to a database, right? And asking, um, what did this come from? Is this fish DNA? Is it algae DNA? Is it you know, diatoms? Um, well, so when I talk about DNA sequencing coverage, I'm, I'm talking about how many of those sequences do we have, right? And so to make the test more sensitive, you make more DNA sequences. And that costs more money. So we, we've kind of targeted a level here that is, um, we think, sensitive enough, um, but it's this trade-off between sensitivity and, and costs. Um, uh, the sensitivity varies depending on what we're talking about. So it turns out the test is not terribly sensitive for Aptasia. You will see Aptasia in your tank before the test sees them. That first Aptasia that shows up in your tank, um, we're not detecting Aptasia at that point. It's once you've got multiple Aptasia growing in your tank. So I don't recommend that people buy my service to detect Aptasia in their tank. I recommend they look in their tank. Right. Um, but there's a lot of things you can't see in your tank, right? You can't see the uh, the uranema, you can't see cryptocarrion, right? Um, and so um, I think for visible pests, DNA sequencing is not the most sensitive. Right. But for invisible tests, I mean, it, invisible pests, it's the only game in town. And, and how sensitive is it? Uh, as I said, depends on the group. Um, it seems in general to be very sensitive for micro eukaryotes. So um, if we if we were to expand that table at the bottom of the report and go through 
everything that we found in this sample. Tons of dinoflagellates, ciliates. Um, these are all micro eukaryotes, comparable in size to the parasites that we're looking for. Um, so it looks like the test is doing a really good job at um, at the groups we care about, the the micro eukaryotes, and and frankly, it's not that sensitive for things like aptasia. Gotcha. But it does pick them up. Right. You just need a, um, a, a more than just a, um, a a few in the tank. All right. Let's um, let's look at the second page of that DNA report. And what we're looking at here is this um, yeah. pie okay. chart. Uh, yeah, the, the pie chart in the um, in the tank DNA report. Yes. Let me scroll back up to that. So, um, yeah, so this is a good starting point just to think broadly about what groups are in your tank. Um, and we can look at this pie chart, and I can tell you that this is a pretty typical community to see in a, in a reef tank. So um, the, first, the first thing on the list, on the key, that's, um, that's the family that includes all the fish we keep in our in our tanks yeah. um so there's fish dna in the tank and that's a little tiny red slice in the pie chart if we look at the big slices of the pie chart um, a lot of one of the sponge groups demospongia so that's one of the three uh big groups of sponges we found a lot of that in this sample we also found some uh uh some dinoflagellates and dinoflagellate uh what else is abundant here Polychaetes. We found a lot of worm DNA. So polychaeta, that's one of the big purple slices there. A lot of worm DNA in this sample. Um, and again, I'm saying that this is kind of a typical community. So we see copepods, snails, corals, fish, and uh, worms in addition to a bunch of uh, micro eukaryotes. Gotcha. Diatoms I see in there. Um, we always find diatoms and dinoflagellates. Almost every tank. I was going to say, uh, that's something that I've heard, that um, pretty much every tank has uh, dinos. I've heard that, that uh, essentially yeah. it's just a matter of having the right conditions to, to, to make them, you know, become visible in the aquarium itself. So, yeah. Yeah, that's right. You know, with with pathogens, I think you want to keep them out of your tank in the first place, right? Yeah. With dinoflagellates, I don't think anybody's keeping them out of their tank. It's, no. it's about the conditions. Right. Yeah. All right, a couple of um, a couple of questions from the uh, from the viewers, Eli, and then I think we'll uh, we'll wrap it up. I don't want to I don't want to keep you all night long here. Although it's you're, you're three hours behind me, so it's still uh, pretty early in the day for you. But um, so, Mikey, Mike, Mike, I'm fine. Yeah. Uh, the question is um, on the bacteria. Have you seen any connection between Vibrio and RTN and specific corals? Can a bacteria attack a specific acryl like a tenuous? So, so you're asking about the specificity, like this pathogen affects tenuous, but it doesn't affect millipora or, yeah. or some other some coral. Yeah. Um, no, I, you know, I think, I think the principle you're suggesting is correct. I think when all of these pathogens and their hosts, um, I think that principle is probably correct, but, but I don't. I don't know that, and I don't think science knows it at this point. Um, the research literature on this stuff is, like most coral biology, very sort of ecologically focused. That is, travel to one reef, study the coral that's dominant on that reef, and study the disease that happens to affect that coral, right? Um, 
And so in that world, there's very little, how would that pathogen affect some other coral on the other side of the world? In our tanks, those corals get brought together and it can be relevant, right? But in the, in the research world, I'm sort of explaining why I think, why I think science doesn't know a lot of these answers is, is that the questions kind of don't come up um, so often. And, and also it's just hard work to do, right? Coral disease work is, is just challenging. So I think I don't, I don't know the specific answer and probably we don't. Uh, Question from planet 3D. Have you tested DNA samples and compared findings between the pure ocean and a home tank? So we haven't tested um, ocean samples. We've tested lots of lots of interesting samples, lots of various kinds of aquaria, including you know large coral aquaculture facilities, but but no real ocean samples. Um, it is on the development list. Uh, there's a lot of data out there from ocean samples, so. This this DNA sequencing research world is very into data sharing, and so anybody who takes a sample on a natural coral reef and studies the microbiome in it, um, I'll be able to poke around and find those data. Um, it's it's on the to do list to do those comparisons. Um, uh, but yeah, right now right now I don't have sort of a tool you can click on to do those comparisons. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, Eli. Well, listen, man. I think we're gonna uh, we're gonna wrap it up. Anything else that um, we missed in terms of the major uh, services that you guys provide? I know you got you have some other services, but um, yeah, I was really interested in kind of digging in a little bit with the uh, the microbiome uh, report and the DNA testing. I think they're really cool. And like I mentioned, I am yeah. definitely looking forward to seeing uh, the results from my tank, and and hopefully um, everything is hunky dory. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it too. Yeah, I guess the, the only thing I'd, I'd emphasize is just to, to reiterate what we've said here that these are two different tests. Um, just hope to avoid any confusion on the part of somebody who's going in to, to purchase the service. Um, just be aware there are two different tests. One is all the microbes and that's if you want to know about is my tank mature, um, do I have a a good nitrifying community, these kind of questions, you know, pick that test. Um, if you want to know why your fish just died, make sure you pick the tank DNA test. Yep. Um, I like, the, know, I like the fact or, also or that maybe you have questions about both, but I also like the fact that you could potentially see some pests in there that you weren't aware of, which is, I think pretty cool with the tank DNA. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we see some strange things in there. I mean, it's, it's always great fun for for me, when we get these results back, and I was going to found a new kind of disease this time, right? It's, you never know what you're going to find. Breaking new ground. Um, yep. So for folks that are interested in, in ordering some tests, they just visit the website, aquabiomics.com. Is that the um, website yep. they would go to? Okay, cool. Yeah, that's right. And it's pretty straightforward. I mean, I yeah, did it. Yeah, feel free to. The questionnaire was... Uh, Everything worked for you. Yeah, the questionnaire was really interesting in terms of all the different uh, questions you were asking. Um, you know, you ask a, a, a tank owners in terms of what they have in the tank and what they use in terms of supplements. Obviously, things can impact results, and, yeah. and you guys expect to see certain things depending on what people are uh, doing with their tank. So, for sure, very. Yeah. Uh, I would. Yeah. Oh. It's it's question as it is, and I'm always tempted to add one more. You know, we have these discussions, and I come up with things like, oh, I should add that question. 
uh, it's yeah. a lot of work as it is. Well, listen, guys. folks, it's uh, it's really cool, cutting edge stuff, and um, I I would uh, I would certainly recommend uh, looking into this. Uh, it's it's a great uh, service. It's it's something that uh, is is very unique and new out there, and I think it's pretty cool. And I'm certainly going to have a uh, I think a place for a lot of folks out there in terms of um, you know seeing what's in the tank and potentially how to uh, troubleshoot issues you know we all we all want to keep a healthy and thriving reef tank so this is kind of a way to uh gather some intelligence on the tank um you know besides doing like an icp test so eli thanks again man for uh for jumping on this live stream really uh, appreciate it and folks if you have any additional questions you can just drop them in the uh in the comments and i'm sure eli will uh will see those or else you could just uh, shoot those guys an email with any other questions but eli thanks again that's going to do it for this show and thank uh, you. Yep. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Appreciate it. I really appreciate you being here, Eli. So I also want to thank again my uh, my sponsors, both the Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine, for supporting the show. And I also want to thank all of you folks uh, for for tuning in and watching, and for the folks that contributed via the uh, the super chat. Thank you very much. My next live stream will be uh, next Thursday, October seventh, at eight p.m. Eastern Standard Time with Dr. Ben Titus. Ben is a biologist, so it should be another great show. Until then, be safe out there, and we will see you next time. Adios.